This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking Labels podcast. I am your host, Rosanna Gill, and I am very, very appreciative that you are here this week. Uh, Before I jump into the episode, I wanted to remind you that our partner for the entire month of May has been Dee Williams, the owner of Dee's Sweet Teas. And she's made a couple teas that I just thought were so cute. One says Hill You Boo and another one says MILF. But if you go to my personal Instagram, you will find out that MILF does not stand for what you probably think it does. And if you like other either the teas that I'm wearing, you can go to her website, which is linked into the in the show notes of this episode, and request uh, either of those shirts, both those shirts. Just make sure when you request them, because they are not mass produced, she'll make them individually for you, that you mention breaking labels. So I am so excited that she has partnered with us for the month of March. And if you have not listened to her episode, episode 51, then I definitely encourage you do that as well. And if you have not already subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it, please do so because then every week when we have another episode or post another episode, you will automatically be notified and you don't have to come searching for all the episodes. So make sure to subscribe if you haven't. And with that, let's jump into this one. This week's episode is all about a book that I have been waiting for probably 15 years on. Now, I say that because I didn't know this specific book was going to come, but I have been waiting for a book from Oprah, actually for probably longer than 15 years, because how old am I? I'm almost 35. So yeah, 20 years. Let's go with 20, because she has been one of my biggest inspirations for as long as I can remember, in part because of all the little pieces of her life story that I've gleaned over the years. Now, here's the thing. Growing up, I was not allowed to watch TV during the weekdays or on weekdays. So I never actually got to watch her TV show. But on the couple of occasions I got to see her TV show during the summers, like it always just blew my mind. I always learned something that I couldn't believe. And I loved how she connected with people because I always felt like I had that ability as well. It is why in high school, one of my nicknames from some people, and in college actually was Oprah because people tended to just tell me their life stories, tell me their problems. And there's just always been a love and a respect for her. Then to find out she was coming out with book one, I was like, I don't care what it is. I'm going to buy it because I have to read anything I can about Oprah and her life. But two, when I found out that the book was called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. Well, well, my friends, I was like, well, this is why I love you, Oprah. And this is why I'm a ride or die. You don't even know me, but I'm a ride or die fan. And um, she wrote this book with Dr. Perry, who is, there's a lot of titles, but I'm going to go with brain scientists. And he has studied trauma and the effects of trauma for 30, 40 years. So he's a pretty good 
source, I would say, about the subject and the topic. And apparently they've been working together for years and having these conversations. And this book is basically one giant conversation between the two of them about trauma and resilience and healing. And I want to clarify something really quick and off the bat, because something that's happened over the years when I try to say, but look at what this person went through. Is it really so hard to understand how this happened or how they did that? And that gets construed as me making an excuse for someone. I'm not making an excuse for the act, but I do feel like if we don't look more closely and critically at how people come to do some of these things, when, how are we ever going to stop it? How do you ever change it? How do you ever rehabilitate somebody if you don't actually address the root cause? Call it a Pollyanna. I've definitely been called that before, but just my thought. So this book was just came at such an amazing time in my life and my journey. And also the reason that I'm doing this big book review on the last Wednesday of May is because if you don't know, this month is Mental Health Awareness Month. All the episodes of the Breaking Labels podcast this month have been conversations around mental health and also mental illness. If you have not listened to episode five of this podcast, I talk about my family story and our journey with mental illness. And I will reference that a couple times throughout this because when I'm talking about a book called What Happened to You, that had a pretty big effect and impact on my life. And I relate a lot of the things that I read and now understand from reading this book to what I went through and what my family went through dealing with mental illness. So I'm, it's kind of hard to even think of where to start. But what I will say is she had me at the foreword, okay? Y'all, the foreword of this, if you've ever had labels like people pleaser, self-sabotager, disruptive, argumentative, checked out, can't hold a job, or bad at relationships used to describe you or your loved ones, this book is for you. Well, Oprah, I was already sold. But guess what? You sold me again at the foreword. Foreword? Foreword. I don't know how to pronounce that, actually. I might be putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable on that. Actually, it just says a note from the authors. So there you go. The note from the authors sold me even more. I was like, yes, people pleaser, right here. Now, I've had some understanding and through therapy been able to see that, huh, maybe part of the reason that I've always had a hard time saying no or that I've been so focused on making other people happy is because that's how I got the attention and the validation that I wanted as a child. Not only should you read this if you yourself have been a people pleaser, self-sabotage or disrupt any of that, but if there's you have a child that is maybe exhibiting some of that, if you have a family member who's exhibiting that, and while it doesn't specifically say it, I really think this is great for people if you have a family member with mental illness, because mental illness is not something that affects one person. It affects the entire household. It's kind of unfair that we say that one person has a mental illness because maybe it might afflict them, but the impact is everyone in their household and their family. And if we don't address that, if we don't look at how it's affecting the other people, not in an accusatory way, but in an understanding, in a way of how do we heal this family and how do we address needs that are inevitably going to go unaddressed if we don't make an active effort to do so. 
Okay, I'm going to go to page 22. That's the first one that I wanted to talk about. This is a quote from Oprah. What I've learned from talking to so many victims of traumatic events, abuse, or neglect is that after absorbing these painful experiences, the child begins to ache. A deep longing to feel needed, validated, and valued begins to take hold. As these children grow, they lack the ability to set a standard for what they deserve. And if that lack is not addressed, what often follows is a complicated, frustrating pattern of self-sabotage, violence, promiscuity, or addiction. She said or, but I think there's a lot of people that have and in that one. Again, if you are a listener of the podcast, I've talked to a few people, one of which that we had a three-part series with was Josh Shea, who is a recovering porn addict. Another one was Dr. Rob Kelly, who was an alcoholic or is a recovering alcoholic. All of them could trace experiences they had back to trauma. All of them. And again, I've said this before in those episodes, and I'll say it again in this one. I've always had a heart for people who suffer from addiction. Because while I've never gone down the road of heroin and cocaine and all that, my thing has always been food. And again, I've talked about it a lot on the podcast. I thought about food a lot in this. And while it is not something that's listed as a numbing agent necessarily the way drugs are, I know personally I have numbed a lot of stuff with food. I have numbed insecurity about my job, my ability to do my job, social anxiety, all of that. I've numbed with food. One of the things, and I don't think I have it bookmarked, so I'll just go ahead and talk about it. Um, In one of the chapters, they talk about how if a child uh, is crying and not being soothed, or if they're crying and the response they get from their caregiver is anger at their crying, they're going to find ways to kind of disassociate. So basically, they, they go into themselves. To no fault of theirs, I remember... I was always very, very sensitive as a child. Like I would cry a lot. Got to a point where I I finally learned how to hold it in more. I also learned how to eat more. (laughs) So fine, I wasn't crying when I got a bad test at school and was worried about what the response would be because it wasn't 100 and it wasn't perfect. I didn't have to cry because I could just eat mindlessly. And I got really good over the years at stuffing down those tears and not crying, but it's interesting how I learned how to soothe in other ways. I didn't want to cry anymore because that made me a crybaby, and I would get made fun of for that. When I almost want to scream at people, like, just let people cry. Like, if they need to cry, just let them freaking cry. Because if they don't cry, they're going to soothe in another way. And maybe for them, it won't be food. Maybe it will be drugs. Maybe it will be alcohol. Maybe it will be porn. There's different ways that they're going to disconnect and numb and try to take care of themselves. And we get so caught up on that thing that they're using and judging them for that, as opposed to, and the crux of this book, as opposed to asking, what happened to you? Why are you doing that? 
I, I, I guess I buried the lead. The whole point of this book is Oprah and Dr. Perry talk about it throughout the book of how do we shift the narrative, shift the questioning from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And I will say right now, I encourage anybody to read this book because as much as it could help you understand people in your life, it can also help you understand and have a lot more grace for yourself. Because there were a lot of moments in this book where I understood things I'd been doing for years and in things that I had judged myself so much for. And now I got to see, instead of judging myself for that, maybe I can now see I did that because of X, Y, and Z. Instead of saying what was wrong with me, I can say, I, I get what happened to me. And I understand why I did that. One example I'll go ahead and talk about is watching TV. So again, like I said earlier, I could not watch, I was not allowed to watch TV during school days or on school nights because my job was to do well in school, get good grades. So weekdays were only for schoolwork. On the weekends, um, and also when I didn't have necessarily a routine, uh, I think it was about in the fifth grade, my parents gave me a TV for my bedroom. And I thought I was so lucky. And a lot of my friends were like, oh my God, you're so lucky. Uh, and I still think I was because that was how I numbed a lot. I would spend hours watching TV, escaping what was happening or what I didn't have control of around me. You know, kind of like maybe sometimes kids might play video games for hours. How you might think, God, how can somebody be so disconnected and on their phone? Maybe instead of judging the action, because I judged myself for a long time. I used to always talk about how I was such a couch potato and a lazy kid. <laughs> now, as an adult, I can look back and say, oh, that poor little girl had so much going on that she didn't know how to communicate or talk about. And quite frankly, didn't really want to talk about. The only thing that she could do was numb by watching TV because it gave her an escape. She got to see all kinds of lives that were so different from hers. And she got to dream by watching TV about what her life could be like when she was an adult and she'd go be or live wherever she wanted. And I have a lot of pride in myself now looking back at all the ways that I criticize myself for doing things that now I understand I was just trying to self-soothe. I was just trying to take care of myself the best way I could at the time. In my 20s, I, I, I gave up cable because I didn't like how much time I spent watching TV. And uh, I remember being at some event and somebody was talking about how, isn't it a shame how people watch TV uh, and know all about the Kardashians, but don't know about so-and-so. And they named somebody who apparently was very important in government. And I remember being like, mm-hmm. And in my head being like, I don't know who that person is, but I do know what happened with Kim and Chloe and, and um, Courtney last week on the episode. And I thought, okay, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like that all I can really say or show for all those hours of TV that I watched 
is what the Kardashians are doing. And I had a couple moments too where I, I was like, I really want to do better in my job as an outside sales. I really want to progress. And I feel like I'm probably not going to progress as much as I could if I keep spending my free time watching other people live their lives to doing it however they want to and and being becoming more and more wealthy doing so, which I ain't mad at it. Good on you, Kardashians. Clap, clap. Um, but I decided I didn't want to spend time I could be investing in myself watching somebody else. So I got rid of my my take my cable. Um and at that time I was also working out a lot. I had uh, started training for a half no, it wasn't a half marathon, a 15K. Now I'll get to that in a minute about rhythm and the role that that plays in soothing or walking movement, period. Um but that sort of took another role for me working out. And, you know, when people will say like, oh, I don't know how you work out so much. And I used to always say, it's just a ha- like, to me, it's just habit. Like I don't have to force myself to work out or to want to move. I just know that it makes me feel good. Well, that as again, I'll get to later in a little bit more detail is a way of soothing as well. So for me, it wasn't, it wasn't about just the working out for aesthetics and for vanity reasons. That really was a way for me to heal myself, for me to disconnect from everything happening or all the things that I still didn't really know how to process because I didn't go into therapy until my 30s. So my 20s was a whole lot of me trying to figure out ways to soothe myself or to deal with issues without necessarily having an emotionally evolved toolbox to do so, which is just a fancy way of saying I hadn't gone to therapy yet. That's all that is. Now, if that's me, and I had very supportive parents, because, again, I know I've talked a lot about the things that have happened in our household, but I want you to understand, like, I had very good parents. Like, the efforts that my mom made to see and hear me when she wasn't having episodes, all the practices that my dad came to, like, they were very involved parents. And now... There, I mean, there was a couple of times reading this where I was just crying because I was just so grateful for them because I understood, okay, fine. There were things that I had to cope with and deal with, yes, but I was still set up for success because of the fact that as a child, as a baby, I had the love and affection. Now, was it sometimes intermittent with my mom, depending on what she was going through? yes. The, well, I would say the the presence was intermittent at times, but I still had my dad. And again, my mom did so much to try to make up for it when she wasn't uh, dealing with everything, all the turmoil that she was dealing with, that I really do feel like I was set up to succeed. And my heart goes out to anybody who didn't have that, who if they had a mentally ill parent and that was their only parent and they were a baby and there was nobody else to help come in and give that affection and that attention and that warmth, I can see very easily how they would use substances. They would get addicted to drugs, that they would need to find a way to numb to self, all of that. So, okay. That's an aside. Back to the book. 
Oh, okay. Page 27 through 29. So in that section, Dr. Perry is talking about this man, Michael Roseman, um, who suffered from PTSD. And he comes to Dr. Perry after having a really bad episode and he brings his girlfriend and he says to Dr. Perry, like, I don't want to screw this up. I need you to explain to her what's wrong with me. And this kind of comes out of the blue. So Dr. Perry is like, well, what, what happened? Like, what was the impetus for this? And essentially what happened was they were out, they were having a lovely evening. Um, I should also mention, by the way, that I don't know if I did, but um, Mike Roseman was uh, a veteran. So he had PTSD from fighting, I think Vietnam, but definitely in a war. So they're out, they're having a very nice evening. Everything's great. And then a motorcycle backfires, like the, 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 the noise that sounds like gunshots. And in that moment, Mike drops to the ground, is screaming because in that moment it is Vietnam. He's back in Vietnam. He's back in a war zone because he heard that sound. Now, there is a lot of graphs and charts and a lot of very smart language to explain that basically this is his brain responding. It's making a false equivalent between that sound and his time in war when if he didn't respond immediately to that sound, he he could die, right? It's a protective thing. It's a has to do with the cortex. I'm not even going to get into it because I'll butcher it. I'm not going there. I'm not doing it. You don't deserve that as my my wonderful, wonderful audience. You need to read the book, though. And it talks about basically how the brain will make these connections to protect us, but can't necessarily discern. So the brain immediately hears that noise and thinks or registers that noise as, oh, no, this is an emergency. This is a fight or flee situation. Do something. So even though he's just in, you know, a nice neighborhood, having a nice dinner with his girlfriend, now he's back in Vietnam in that moment. And it that whole part is talking about how the impact of sounds and smells and even just spatial recognition can trigger something that we may not always understand. And I don't remember if it was right around this part or close to it, but Dr. Perry talks about a boy that he worked with. This boy had a very abusive father. um, And then also, I think this is the one who had a very abusive father and it was a bad situation with his stepfather as well, or foster father. But so he had, he started acting out. He was having a lot of issues at school and they're watching him, Dr. Perry. And I guess the behavioral team, whoever, And he's in this class, this boy is in this class with this male teacher who's trying really hard to connect with them and and it's just not working. And they can't figure out why, you know, he doesn't look anything like the boy's father or foster father or stepfather. He doesn't look like the men in his life. He doesn't act like them. He definitely treats this boy differently. By all accounts, he's doing everything right, but they can't figure out why When he gets to a certain point with the boy or gets like to basically to a certain distance with the boy, it's almost like something happens and the boy just lashes out every time and it just doesn't add up. They can't trace it to any one thing the teacher is saying or doing. So 
Dr. Perry is sitting in on one of the visits with the boy and his father, because at that point, the boy couldn't be alone with his father because of just the history of things that had happened. And Dr. Perry's listening to them. And, you know, he can tell that um, the father had been drinking. He could smell the alcohol, which was one of the rules. He wasn't supposed to drink before seeing his son. Um, and Dr. Perry, as he's sitting there just kind of watching them play, I think, checkers, he starts daydreaming. Because the father is wearing Old Spice. And it reminds Dr. Perry of his own father who wore Old Spice. And he starts going down this whole rabbit hole of memories with his father that are all positive. And then he comes out of that and realizes, hmm, let me check on something. So he goes and talks to the teacher and asks him, what cologne or deodorant do you use? Old Spice. So Dr. Perry says, okay, we're going to try something then. Can you stop wearing that? So essentially what had been happening is every time this man got around this boy and that boy smelled that Old Spice, it took him to having to deal with his father, having to fight for himself, how, having to protect himself, not because of anything that this teacher was saying or doing, but because of a scent. Now, if you had asked that boy, what is it that bothers you so much about this man? He wouldn't have been able to tell you because he doesn't even realize that that is his innate response to that smell, that he has now begun to associate that smell with fear, with having to act out, having to protect himself. And that section, that whole story reminded me so much of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking with Strangers. And it talks it talks a lot about social justice, not social justice, but more of policing and how things are done and the interactions between people. Well, policing is just a part of it. But it was brilliant to me because he talks about how, you know, we assume that there are certain things that somebody who's innocent versus guilty are always going to do. And there are certain ways that people interact with each other that's just considered normal. And if you're doing anything other than this, then this makes you suspicious. And I am thinking about that. And I am thinking about a story that a friend of mine told me who works in corrections. And how one day they were taking an inmate who had gotten in a fight with somebody else and was trying to calm him down. And they're walking together. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the inmate turns on him and starts beating on him. And for no apparent reason, because they had never had a negative interaction before. There had never been a negative altercation between the two of them. And it just didn't seem to make sense. Like, was it just he was mad about this other situation, so he decided to take it out on the corrections officer? Or I can't help but wonder... If there was something after reading that situation with Dr. Perry, Malcolm Gladwell's book, and this, wondering, was there another trigger that neither of them were aware of consciously? Now, I'm not saying that excuses the action of beating up or attacking a corrections officer or anybody for that matter, but it does make me wonder, and I wish that we could all wonder from a lens of what happened or maybe just think 
and believe that there could be something more than somebody's just a bad person or somebody is just out to do bad. One of the things that came up is the trauma that happens to children and especially in the first few months of their lives and how even though they don't have the words to describe it, they may not realize it later, the way that they have have to survive as children dealing with those traumas and all the connections that their brain makes as it's developing, whether it's when I cry, nobody comes to help me or I can't make sense of what's happening around me because there's always different people around me and there is no consistency. All these things that a child is going through and would have no way of explaining and the long-term impact of that long into adulthood and how we may be doing things and have no understanding of what is the root cause of it, i.e. what happened to us. And one of the things that they talk about that I didn't even bookmark, but really made me think was, you know, um, somebody who has an innate fear, I won't say innate, but has a strong fear of dogs. And Oprah is talking about a friend of hers who, who, you know, just like cannot, never had a negative experience with a dog, but their parents did. And she talks about how dogs were often used uh, during slavery as a way to intimidate or punish slaves. And you can imagine, let's say 1800s, right? People growing up as slaves, being not just taught, but they had to fear dogs because if they had a slave owner who used that as a punishment, who used that as a form of intimidation, then innately they're going to know, like, they're going to teach their children this, that thing is something to be feared. That is something that could kill you. That is not a cutesy thing to play with. That is something that should cause fear. You think, okay, all right, fine. So I could understand the generation after people who were enslaved. But then you think about what about race riots and uh, when our country is going through this little thing called a civil rights movement, when again, dogs were used for intimidation against people of the black community. And I always wondered, Growing up, like, why is it that more of my black friends don't like dogs? What is that? Like, why do they have such an issue with dogs? And it's like, yeah, well, because if maybe your parents and your parents' parents and your parents' parents have all been not just conditioned, but have seen dogs being used as weapons, then yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna be raised with a fear of dogs. It's gonna be passed down generation to generation as a form of protection. Like that's what communities, that's what communities do. We protect each other. We tell each other, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't talk that way. Don't trust those people because we have to protect each other. How is it any different? It's no different. And it also, again, going to race, when people say, you know, well, slavery was such a long time ago. Why do people still, why are people still so, hung up over it. And it's like, it's not just the slavery, right? It, it, it's not simply the slavery that's the issue. It is 
all of the long-held beliefs that came out of slavery that existed long past the abolition of it. It is the traumas that have been inflicted on people for the color of their skin. And you want to say, well, that's not happening to you. So why are you so concerned about it? When you say, well, but it happened to my parents. It happened to my parents' parents. I've seen, they've seen things and they raised me to be cautious of certain people and certain institutions, policing, for our own protection. Looking at it from a lens, not of, well, if you just don't do anything bad, you won't have any issue. But then looking at it from a perspective of, do you know these two people who are interacting with each other? are interacting with each other from a lens of their own personal experiences and traumas. And that's on both sides, right? I'm not saying it's just the person versus the police officer. Like they both have their own traumas, their own triggers that they may not even be aware of. And they're both reading each other from their own understanding of those traumas and those whatever understanding they may or may not have. Is it really so hard to see the disconnect? I mean, to be honest, when I'm thinking about this, it's amazing to me that we communicate the way that we do or that we all have these assumptions, these wide sweeping assumptions of how people should interact when I don't know how we do in the first place. Like, it feels like we're all speaking on different languages when you really look at where we come from and what's happened to us. So, yeah, PTSD. (laughs) Um, And I don't think, you know, I think people now have a much more open understanding of PTSD, I guess to the extent of, hey, it's a thing that affects people. But the beauty of this book is it talks about PTSD as more than something that you only experience in war. A child can experience PTSD. And it's very easy to look at a child and the way that they're acting out and to say, well, they're just a bad kid or, well, they got into drugs. And it's like, okay, what happened before that? What happened that might be causing this. And here's the thing. It's not always something as egregious in our minds as physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. You also have to allow space for the fact that a child could be incredibly traumatized by a divorce and a change of their nuclear family. And there can be long-term impacts of that as well, especially depending on the age. And one of the examples that you know, Oprah gave is, is, you know, talking to parents over the years and how like they'll say, you know, kids are so resilient. Kids are so resilient. They'll be fine. And I've said that. I've said that myself, like in explaining like, oh, you know, people are like, oh, how did you go through what you did? And I'm like, oh, kids don't know any better. We're resilient. And it's like, well, resilience is built. You don't automatically have it. And if you do not have the family support and the community support that you need to help build resilience, Maybe you won't be as quote unquote resilient. Maybe you will act out. Maybe things will happen that make you look like you're just a bad kid or a bad person. But maybe it's just because you didn't have the community that you needed to build that resilience. When Dr. Perry and Oprah are talking about resilience and the role that community plays in it. And also um, the title of this, how 
all of this had anything to do with me people pleasing or loving to club. So I will go ahead and skip to that part because I thought this was very interesting. So I have always had a love of going to clubs, partly because I love music. But the thing I loved about clubs was that you could be surrounded by the music. Like you could feel it. I loved going and being able to feel the bass reverberating. And I didn't have any word for it. I just thought I just really loved music. And I, I always say I love to dance. Here's the honest truth. I really have like two moves, like a little side. I don't even know if I have two. I think it's really just one. I do like a figure eight and that's my jam. And then like, you know, if a song comes on that I really like, I'll be like, oh, so I might do my figure eight a little bit faster. But it's really the same thing that I always do. When I go clubbing, there ain't any twerking happening. One, because I don't know how. Um, but two, <laughs> the funny part is I actually am very uncomfortable with dancing with people, specifically guys. Uh, my friend Morella, I'm shouting her out now, used to always get on to me when we go out because I would always lie and say I had a boyfriend because I didn't actually like, I didn't feel comfortable talking and flirting. I didn't, I didn't know how to do that not my jam. So I would just lie and say, I have a boyfriend. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to be there in the midst of the crowd, watching people and feeling the music. Again, not feeling in the sense of doing great dance moves. That didn't happen. I'm just sitting there on the sidelines with my drink, doing my little two-step sway thing, my little figure eight, and just being in the music. And so I would always lie and say I had a boyfriend. The only time that it really didn't work out and that backfired was when like that pressure of flirting was off and we start, I start talking with someone and then I'm like, oh God, I actually really like this guy. But now it's awkward because I lied to him and told him I have a boyfriend and I would actually like to possibly go on a date with this human being. But now I feel like I can't because is he going to believe me that I lied because I have social anxiety? Like how does this happen? So there's some awkward situations that come from that. But... <laughs> I never understood why I loved going to the club so much. As in, like, I would have a really tough week at work. And I remember telling my my roommate, one of my roommates, like, I just want to go out. I just need to get out. I want to go out dancing. Just wanting to be out. That's it. I just wanted to be out. I wanted to be in the club. So in one of these sections, Dr. Perry is talking about uh, how people have coped and existed in communities. So let me just read this paragraph. For thousands and thousands of years, humans lived in small intergenerational groups. There were no mental health clinics, but there was plenty of trauma. I assume that many of our ancestors experienced post-traumatic problems, anxiety, depression, sleep disruptions, but I also assume that they experienced healing. Our species could not have survived if a majority of our traumatized ancestors lost their capacity to function well. The pillars of traditional healing care were one, connection to clan and natural world. Two, regulating rhythm through dance, drumming, and song. Three, a set of beliefs, values, and stories that brought meeting meaning to even senseless random trauma. And four, on occasion, natural hallucinogens, hallucinogens or other plant-derived substances we use to facilitate healing with the guidance of a healer or elder. Now, before you get all high and mighty on that um, natural hallucinogens, I can't say that word, on that word, um, or plant-derived substances, also consider 
that if you take any sort of meds for anxiety or depression, you take in some hallucinogens or whatever. There's it's basically just medicating symptoms. So let's let's just clear that out the way. So whether you think you're so great because you're taking something that your doctor prescribes or you're doing weed, I think you're kind of trying to do the exact same thing. Just gonna put that out there. Connection to clan and the natural world. So there's a lot of talk in this book about the importance of having community um, and having family more than just, you know, a single mom trying to do everything for kids and how that's basically setting the mom and the kids up for failure. Because the tribal history of humans was that you would have four adults, fully developed adults for every child. But in our society, you might have one very overworked, overstressed mom for four children. And then we like to condemn them for what they're not doing enough of. Yeah. So mom guilt? No. No. No more mom guilt. Because you you were never, we were not created to be everything for our children. You're supposed to have other people helping and supporting. So just going to throw that out there. But that whole regulating rhythm through dance, drumming and song. You know, I was talking about earlier, I used to numb watching TV. But another big thing for me has always been music. And when I was in college, I didn't, oh my God, I never even put that together. I didn't have a TV in college. We didn't have a TV in the dorm. So I used rhythm, running, and music always. I do not run without music. I always have music. That was my release. That was my therapy. And yes, I had the added benefit. I ended up losing weight when everybody else was gaining their freshman 15. I lost weight because I quickly figured out I wanted a routine. So my routine was to get up 5.30 every morning, play my music as loudly as I could while running. So it ended up being a side effect that I lost weight. But in essence, that was also how I was coping. And I remember specifically one time coming back from the club with my my roommate, and this is when we still lived in the dorms, and I don't remember what happened, but I was very upset and frustrated about something, but I couldn't, I was just like spew, like spilling over with frustration and anger, and I just did not know what to do with all of this energy, because I, I've always been a people pleaser. I don't argue. I don't yell. At least I didn't at the time. So I went for a run at 2 a.m. in the morning, listening to my rap music. That is the other thing that was very interesting to me on the fact that drumming specifically is something that has always been healing for people because I have always loved drums. Hence why I love bass. Hence why I love rap music. So here's a funny thing. I've always had friends that like make fun of me and my love of trap music. I didn't know what trap music was. I just knew I really loved the beat. And I used to always say, I don't care what the words say. Most of the times I don't actually like the words. Sometimes I think they're kind of silly. Um, but I love the beat. My favorite thing has been ever since I got my first car to drive with my bass up as loud as it could go so I could feel the reverberation. Now, you driving down the street are going to think I'm like this little, I don't know, probably going to think I'm just some little Hispanic girl trying to be thug because that's the assumption when you hear bass a lot of times is that, oh, trying to be thug. Listening to this, not knowing it at the time, that was me soothing because when I would get really stressed, I would go for drives and I would turn my bass up as loud as I could because I loved, the th- like it just felt soothing. 
There's not much more to it. Now, the funny thing is I listen to a lot of different types of music and I now will like turn my bass down because I just don't like the looks that I get when I have it up to the place where I would like it because people can think whatever they want. The funny thing though is there's a lot of music besides rap music that has a strong bass. Adele's music, Set Fire to the Rain, it's got a good bass to it, y'all. Two cellos, one of my favorite layer, uh, two classically trained cellists who do covers of songs like Highway to Hell by ACDC um, and some other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head. So you, I might roll up next to you and all you hear is the bass and you might think I'm listening to, you know, rap music. But the truth of the matter is it could be two cellos or two chains. At the end of the day, I'm just there for the bass. And going back to clubbing, that's why I used to love to go clubbing. I could never understand, like, why do I just want to go? Because that was me wanting music was a way that I've always soothed. Noise. Now, if you have not gone to any therapy and you have no language to communicate how you're feeling, why you're frustrated, you don't even understand why you're frustrated and angry and just so uncomfortable, you seek out things. I sought out going to the club. Not because I was out there trying to get with all the guys, although I did like getting hit on, I'm not going to lie, but again, I was very uncomfortable with it, hence why I said I was, I had a boyfriend when I didn't. But the connection for me was also very interesting that, you know, it talks about how people will connect through a set of beliefs, values, and stories, religion, right? When I left Florida and went to Memphis, first two things I looked for, a gym and a church. At that point, I was going to church again, and I loved going to church. Now, here's the funny thing. I didn't actually like talking to people at church. I just liked to be there. I liked to be a part of community. Also, probably why when I was in high school, I loved going to my church youth group. I was raised United Methodist. We had UMYF. I loved going. Didn't always have the easiest time connecting with people my own age. I usually tended to hang out with the adults, but without realizing it, I was always seeking community, but not necessarily community where I could talk about what was going on because I didn't know how yet. And the problem, I think sometimes, is our communities, sometimes, especially religious communities, like to have these rules, right? And I guess they all we all have rules. In any part, any community, we all have rules. But what gets me and what has always gotten me is when I always felt like I needed to defend myself for liking to go to the club, even though I went to church. And it bothered me that I always was kind of made to feel like I was doing something wrong. There was always kind of this assumption that if you're going to the club, you're looking for a certain something. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I was celibate for two years. Going to the club, ain't going home with nobody. I never did that. I had my own reasons for why having random sex just wasn't my thing, but, and not necessarily moral ones, mind you, okay? But I had my own set of reasons. And I just always hated like this one thing that I wanted so bad, which was community. I still had to keep it at an arm's distance because I still wasn't ready. I didn't really trust people. I kind of still had my own issues, but I wanted to be a part of something, but I hated this feeling that if I didn't look and act the same way everybody else did, then I wasn't a good member of that community. And I think that's where a lot of shame comes from. And I used to get that a lot, like, oh, you're at the club Saturday night and you're teaching Sunday school in the morning. Yeah, because to me it made sense because I wasn't at that club for anything. And 
trust and believe. There were plenty of guys who probably thought that I was there for something and then come to find out like, they're like at the end of the night, like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to get food and I'm going to bed, sir. Like, I don't, I don't, uh uh-uh. I'm not here for that. I came here to get my dancing, i.e. my two-step sway in, listen to music and go home. But I really resented at times when people at church would make little comments about me going to the club. Because to me, they were assuming that I was doing certain things at the club or being a certain way. And it's tough when the community that you sought out, again, is just looking at one thing in your life and putting a label on you and what that makes you or doesn't make you as a Christian. And I never could have defended myself like I could now. Because I understand after reading this why I was drawn to the things that I was drawn to. I understand why I love the music that I do and why it is the music that I listen to has been like the given me the most release. And I also understand why I was able to go to clubs for years and not feel like it undermined who I was as a Christian. So I'm just going to leave that out there for anybody who needs to pick it up. Take it as you will. And one other thing that I want to do, because I shouted out Morella as a friend. Um, one of the things that, and this is completely apart from clubbing now. So we, we talked about the clubbing, we talked about the music, um, even working out. Walking is a form of rhythm for the record. Did think that it was very interesting how in my most stressful days at work, like my biggest anxiety is I need to go out for a walk. I need to go out for a walk. And for me, it was always like, I assumed it was because I just really wanted to work out. I, I needed the exercise. Now I understand, no, that was me, my body understanding, we need to release all this tension. You need rhythm. Walking. Walking is one of the best ways to do so. So also, form of therapy. Something else my mom and I always noticed is she always had less episodes when she was walking a lot. So putting that out there. You know, we always put all this emphasis on doing these crazy hard workouts. Yeah, maybe you just need to walk. Maybe you just need to move. Maybe you just need to dance in the middle of your room. I might be doing that now on. Like if I have really stressful work days and I can't go for a long walk, I'm just going to bust it out in my two-step because that's what I apparently need. Okay, I digressed. Going back to the friend thing. Because Oprah talks a lot about presence in this. And she talks about her friendship with Gail King and how, you know, she's always loved watching Gail as a mother because no matter what's going on, if her kids come in, she drops everything and is just present with them. And, you know, compares it to like how a lot of times now you'll see parents are, you know, giving their kids phones or they're on their phones and they're not present. Yes, you may be together, but you're not actually present. And My big thing I remember when I was a kid was, you know, when my mom's eyes would glaze over, like being so frustrated, trying to break the glaze and like, how do I get through this? And and figuring out at some point, like, this isn't me. And instead of trying to get her attention, I would just get angry at her. I was, I would just become very dismissive and I would go off and do my own thing and I'd be mad at her. But she talks about how in that presence, sometimes people don't need you to listen to them for an hour, right? A lot of times when people have gone through trauma, they can't talk about what they've gone through for hours on end. They just drop little nuggets of it as they're able and willing to. And that is actually those dosing, that dosing of connection is as therapeutic, if not more so sometimes than them sitting and talking about it for an hour, especially for children who 
are not comfortable enough to talk about what they're going through for an hour. So maybe an hour-long therapy session isn't that beneficial for them, but just being present with them when, and they use an example of this little boy who um, saw his mother get killed. An intruder, somebody came in the house and killed her, and he's, he witnessed it, and he was very young, and he and his father were at the grocery store afterwards, not the same day, but like, you know, a little after they're at the grocery store and the boy looks at the clerk who later you realize she reminded him of his mother and he looks at her and he goes, my mom's dead. She was killed. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And then he just went back to it. But the dad felt like, oh my God, this is, we have to talk about this. And so he tried to get his son to talk about it more afterward, not realizing that that was all the boy needed in that moment was just to say that, to have somebody say, oh, I'm sorry. And it was enough. And and when his father kept pushing him and trying to get him to talk and felt like he was doing the right thing as a father, because who wouldn't, the boy tried to get away. He started rocking rhythm. And then he ran away, fleeing. And basically ended up running into oncoming traffic. Luckily, he didn't get hurt, but the father was thinking, oh, he's trying to kill himself. No, he was trying to get away from you because you were trying to make him talk about something that he just wasn't ready to. I say all that to come back to one of my longest friendships. And I'm going to say her by name because anybody who's grown up with us knows Star. And I've always wondered, not I wonder because I know she's an amazing person, but our friendship has always been interesting to me because she's never pushed me to talk about things. And we will go six months without talking and then just pick up like nothing has ever happened. And it has been and is one of my most cherished friendships. And when I read that story about that little boy, I realized what Star had done for me all those years. She was always a safe place I could go to. I could drop little pieces as I needed to. And then that would be enough. We didn't have to have these hours long conversations about anything. I just knew that if I needed to say something in a moment, I could, and we would move on. And that was unbeknownst to me all those years, what I needed. I didn't need somebody who I could talk to about because I didn't know how to yet. I just didn't have the words for it. But having that presence, that stability that I had in Star as a friend, I, I can't even tell you how much it means to me. I appreciate it more now than I did all those other years. And I already thought I was lucky to have her as a friend. But looking at it from that perspective of having somebody that I could just have small doses of releases all these years, because we've been friends since eighth grade. So was that 12? So holy, wow. Ooh, 23 years. That's a, that's a long time. 23 years of dosing. And it also makes me think about the conversation that Sarah and I had last week during um, the two-part episode. Um, we were talking about how people tend to just not unload on us, but, you know, in passing, we'll share these things with us. And we just kind of looked at it as, well, maybe there's something that they can sense that we're a safe place to talk about it. And I'd like to think that still, but I also wonder if it's, again, maybe that person just needed to dose. Maybe they just needed to re release a little bit of it. Not, they don't need you to listen for an hour. They just needed to say that one thing, get it off their chest, and they're happy to go back to something else. I just wonder if more of us could be that for each other. 
just not have to fix it, not feel like it's going to be this huge undertaking. Just allow them to release in whatever small amount or whatever amount they need to in that moment and then allow them to move on. Don't feel like we have to be their therapist or solve it because I've definitely fallen into that role before. Maybe they just need to say that one thing and move on. So all that to say, I hope whoever you are that you get this book. And I don't know how to set it up. I don't want it to be something where you have to write a review, but I'm going to go ahead and buy five copies. And if you want to shout me out, if you want to shout the podcast out, great. But if you don't want to do that and you just want to DM me and be like, I would really like that book, I got you, boo. Reach out to me. Because if if I'm going to spend a hundred bucks this month on something other than myself. I want it to be other people getting this book. So if you want to write a review, yes, I will send you a book, write the review and send me your address and I will send it to you. If you don't want to write a review, I don't want you to feel like just because you have to do that to get the book. You can also just DM me and be like, Rosanna, I really want that book. I've got five. Well, I don't have them five right now, but I will have five. I will send you one friend because We need more people to read this and we need more people to be looking at ourselves and others through the lens of what happened to us, not what's wrong with us. All right. Thank you. And I can't wait to see you next week.